I want to recap a bit of what's been going on uh, in the storyline we've had so far. So Nehemiah, uh, in chapter 1, he got the news um, from his brother who came from Jerusalem that the city walls have been broken down, uh, that the gates have been burned, that all this happens. And uh, we don't really grasp too, uh, too heavy what city walls mean because in, in our day, uh, we have highways, we have borders that protect our country, we have police officers, we have militaries. But in, in this day in Nehemiah's times, city walls were very important, especially for main capitals, uh, especially somewhere like Jerusalem. Uh, they were a place, the walls and the gates provided protection, they provided means to go in and out of the city. So you could imagine uh, in that day, if you were traveling through or around and you see broken walls and broken city gates and all these things, and you have nothing but malintent for that place, that you can walk right in and you can do whatever you want. And at this time, it is obvious that Nehemiah hears that and he understands that what's happening there is oppression, that there is a reality of evil that is in that city. There is a growing insidious evil that is happening in there, and it breaks his heart. Um, there, there's so many reasons why we need cities and we need walls and we need access to borders. And, and why does it hit Nehemiah so hard? I mean, Nehemiah is approximately 1,400 miles from Jerusalem. Uh, from what we know, he hasn't even been there. He, hasn't, he wasn't born there. Uh, Nehemiah has been, there's been, they've been in exile for 140 years, and Nehemiah is not older than that. Uh, so we can gather pretty much that Nehemiah doesn't really know personally the place or that time that he's going to be going to look at this, but his heart breaks for these people. And when you think about the job that he has, it's another like question. He's in the presence of the king. This place so far away, so far removed from him, is, would seemingly be insignificant, but it's not. You see this man who is highly affected by the news that his people, uh, that his culture, that the place of uh, where God met with people, that's where the temple is, right? So to a Jew, that is the place where God meets with his people. He hears that and he breaks down and he gets, sets him on one mission. It sparks him uh, to do one thing and we're going to look at what and how he got to that today. Um, and I think one of the awesome things about this book is it's, it really shows um, that God uses, that God puts things on our hearts, on humans' hearts, uh, to do things for him, uh, for the glory of God. And he, he puts it just on ordinary men, ordinary people, ordinary men and women of the church uh, around the world. And this book really uh, displays that um, beautifully. Um, so, we're going to get into Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, and we're going to take a, take a closer look at how this plan really comes uh, into focus. So it says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to him. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And here's one of those pieces of scripture when you read it, uh, it really is, it's, it's really good and healthy to read it with an imagination, uh, to see this scene taking out in place and to, to, um, to try to put together and realize that this is an ordinary man with real fears. And so there's a, there's a date sort of issue going on here. Uh, in Nehemiah chapter 1, we learn that in the 20th year, that's what we hear, uh, in the month of Kislev. So Kislev is kind of the winter time. It's a November, December time. And then we see now here in verse 1 in chapter 2 that this is the 20th year of Artaxerxes and it's the month of Nisan, which is actually the spring. It would, it would almost seem like we're kind of reversing times here, but it's, it's not really that. It's just that 
the dates are the dates of Artaxerxes' reign is marked at a different time in the year. So this is we're actually this delay of four months uh, that's somewhat in that area of four months. Um, and so I just want to point out it, in the, there's something going on in those four months that it takes Nehemiah four months to bring this situation, this moment we're looking at right now. And, and I think it's I think we can we can assume, and this is what reading scripture was imagination. I think we can assume something is going on in those four months, because for one, it says here that Nehemiah, uh, he didn't look sad in the king's presence. And that's kind of an important thing. I, I, don't think it was a, I, think it, I don't think it was probably a great idea for Nehemiah to look sad in the king's presence. For one, he was the cupbearer. Um, and so when you're anywhere within the proximity of the king in any ancient time, your duty was to reflect that beauty and amazement and glory of that king. To be sad in his presence is disrespectful, dangerous, because in that day they're full dictators and just axing your head off anytime. That's just, just something that they're allowed to do. And so Nehemiah maybe was thinking about that. I mean, maybe it was just the winter time, but I, I think there's more going on there. I think the text is going to show us that. Um, but the other thing is, if you're Nehemiah, you're holding a cup, and his job was to make sure that the king didn't get poisoned uh, with wine, with somebody dropping something in his wine and having him killed. So if you look, if you're the cupbearer and you look, something's up with you, you could very well be putting yourself in a risky category because what if the king looks at you and he's like, well, this isn't right. The only way the king's going to die from being poisoned is you're in on the plot. That's the only way. So it would also be very scary for him to think, okay, well, if I look like this, maybe he's going to think I'm, there's a plot going against him and he's going to kill me. Um, so it, it has so many problems on so many levels. Um, but I think what was going on in those four months was that Nehemiah was really wrestling with, did God put this burden on my heart for these people? And is he using my position? It really reminded me of, if you know the book of Esther, um, there's a time in Esther where Haman uh, plots against the Jews. This letter goes out to the kingdoms that says, on this day at this time, uh, you can go and take out all the Jews. And, ne- and Mordecai, which is uh, Esther's uncle, goes to her and says, you need to talk to the king. And, and she's like, you can't approach the king. And she's wrestling with this reality. And Mordecai reminds her, how do you know that God didn't put you here in this place and in this time for that very reason? And I think Nehemiah is wrestling through that reality that he's in this place and he's in this position. He's in proximity of the king. And he's really wrestling with, how am I going to start this conversation? Like, you just kind of mumble something when you're handing him the cup, like, I need some stuff, I need to go to, like, what, what is he wrestling with on the logistics of how am I going to get this request made known? And I, I really think that God laid it on his heart uh, to look sad, to indicate to the king, um, to initiate this conversation uh, that, something might, that something might happen, that God's going to use him uh, for this. And so I want to look at Nehemiah's response, because... He was legitimately afraid. Um, So, verse 3 says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So, despite the fear that Nehemiah had at that point, it says that he was very much afraid and he controlled that fear in his presence for four straight months and finally he lets it go. And so, Despite his fear, despite all those things, he still walks out in faith and he still sees and understands that what's going on is the Lord has put something on his heart incredible for this time, 
for those people who are across. Uh, and he doesn't bail out with, a, with an I'm an anxious or doctor of notes or try to figure out another means or another method. He sees and understands, I'm just going to step into this and I'm going to trust that God is here. I'm not going to shrink back in fear. But he, he legitimately did have some fear. And so I, I, think that's, I think we need to see this today too. I think we need to see one of the things is that like, how many times in our lives when we hear of the broken stories around us and we hear of um, and we're listening and we're seeing we have opportunities and we can feel that God has put it on our hearts to say something, to open our mouths or to step into a place that would have us be very uncomfortable, maybe even fearful, and we back out on that because of some other outside reason, right? We, we just, and, and God puts things on our hearts to do that. He's, he works through us. The Spirit lives in us. Like if you're a believer, that's true about you. Right? And we know that he does that so many times in our lives. I know in my life anyways. I mean, you guys are probably don't struggle with this, but in my life, I know for sure that I, I shrink back from the times that I can feel like the Lord's saying something through me that I should say something at the time. And we see Nehemiah even wrestles with the fear of that. So there's in that time of wait, that is really happening. He's, he's wrestling with these things, and he steps out here, and I just think one of the most amazing uh, things. He is an ordinary guy that is dealing with ordinary fears. And, and he steps out and he trusts in the Lord. Um, so I want to look at the king's response. This might go faster. Um, then the king, and I, this, is, I, this is what really the, what the Lord is doing. So we're going to look at the king's response, but it's really what God is doing in the background, in, in his sovereign way. Says, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to the Jordan. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that, I, that he may give me timber to, for beams to make for the gates and fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So <clears throat> up to this point, we've seen Nehemiah in his wrestling and in his, in his walk of obedience as he um, hears that, hears God through the Spirit work on his heart to reach these people in a place steps into that despite the fear and these, despite what is going on in his heart at the time um, and he's going uh, he's gonna to tell the king right off the, and what he's requesting and the king, the funny part here is that the king picks up on that this is something that Nehemiah has been working on in his head. What are you requesting? The king seemingly notes and makes and realizes that Nehemiah is working on something here and that this is kind of going according to Nehemiah's plan. And it kind of speaks to the, really the office that he holds in the, and um, the position that he has and that relationship that he has with the king. Um, and so he knows that he's been mulling over this plan for a while. Uh, and the first thing uh, that the king does, or that Nehemiah does, is that he prays. Um, and it's, it, it's just a quick little line in here. We don't know what he prays. But it's, it is really significant because it really shows I think not only Nehemiah's reliance on the Lord, but his identification of who really uh, in this scenario is actually king here. 
Um, so he speaks to the king, but the first king that he talks to is actually the king of the universe. So there's even an order going on here that, okay, whatever he says in his prayer, we don't know. It could be a prayer for spirit, whatever it was. But he acknowledges first there's the king above, and then there's Artaxerxes, the king that he's speaking to. Um, but another thing it does is it, it gives us a glimpse into Nehemiah's uh, prayer life and what that looked like. Um, and so prayer, that communication, that, that being with God and trusting in God and being in communion with God um, is a lot like our relationships here. And um, last week, uh, Pastor Roger introduced us to our 100 days of, this is intentional prayer. Um, so as Christians, we know that we don't just pray once in a while, that our lives are to be marked by prayer. Um, because we live in a greater reality, which is the reality of the spiritual world, that's, that's really what we actually live in. We aren't fighting against um, flesh and blood, but like we are fighting against cosmic powers and principalities, right? The reality is that we live in the spiritual world. And so this 100 days of prayer is focused on things, but our lives should be laden with everything that we do all day long, those little bits of prayer. And I'll, I'll, just, I'll just use an example of my family and, and kind of, what it looked like on a human perspective. Um, I grew up in a house with seven kids and two parents. There was nine people in that family. And uh, I was close to them all through my growing up. Um, we were close. And now we've moved apart. And so all my brothers and sisters and my parents, they live uh, in a totally separate part of this country. And we don't talk very often. We don't get uh, into deep conversations very often. Uh, it's pretty rare. Most of my siblings, it's just birthday calls maybe. Um, I don't prioritize these things, whether it's right or wrong, someone else can say, but it's not, our, our relationships are uh, very surface. It's not that I don't love them, I love them as that old relationship exists there, but our communication reflects the strength of that relationship. Now, contrast that with my wife uh, and my kids. I very much, we get to sit down and I get to get into my kids' hearts at night, which is, a, it's digging, it's more digging than anything else. Um, but my wife, we have this thing we call couch time. And it's not really couch, it's more like bedtime. But we talk intimately about all the things that are going on, what we're wrestling with, what the Lord's doing in our lives, what we see, what's going on, of relationships that we have with other people. And that is a robust relationship. But it doesn't, it's not just one single place that we have that. We don't just talk about business. I flirt with her during the day. I say these little things. We'll shoot each other little messages. These are these little, like, ongoing things to know, hey, I'm here, I'm with you, I love you. Like, that relationship is robust, and it has those aspects to it. Nehemiah, as he prays, we're seeing that Nehemiah not only just is, he has a prayer closet or a prayer place, but he's all the time always thinking, walking in strength and the reality that God is real, that he exists, and that he works. And it's, it's just one of those amazing glimpses that we have. Um, so, and here we get to see that long prayer that Nehemiah had been doing in those four months in the preparation, we see how God answers those prayers. Um, it's super staggering, if you ask me. Um, and so, basically, Nehemiah uh, says that if it pleases you, king, uh, and if you think I'm awesome, would you send me a thousand miles away on a long journey to a place I'm going to be gone for a while, just send me off there. Um, and it's not a small task to travel. So if you know your geography, Susa is in western Iran. Um, Jerusalem is 
Not anywhere near that. You have to go clear across Iraq through Jordan into southern uh, Israel and to get to Jerusalem. It's an epic long task. And they don't fly in those days and they don't drive. They're walking. So they're on donkeys, goats. No, donkeys or uh, camels or horses. However you can imagine this, whatever cart you can imagine, it's a long, highly risky journey. It's not like there's checkpoints and borders. It's like marauding bands and problems happening on the way. Uh, this is a big task. Nehemiah could very well be killed in the task of just going there. He could be robbed blind by people who are a little bit angry that some king from Iran has taken over reaches that he's probably never stepped foot on. Um, you can imagine there's probably a little bit of hostility in that travel over there. Um, and yet, and here, here's where I think we start to realize that Nehemiah, he did start to plan in those four months of what, how, what is it going to look like? What are the logistics? Are, what is it going to be? Because he asks him a time, and Nehemiah gives him a time. We don't know the time he gives, um, but we do know that the first time Nehemiah went there, it was about a year. Then he comes back, and then he was gone for another over a decade after. I think it was 12 years he was governor. So Nehemiah's task was a long time. So he had an answer already ready for the king. Right? And you can see that, like, as, as we plan, we don't just jump out and just make things and just go by the seat of our pants. It usually ends bad when we do that. But we plan, we think, we mull over. God uses our intellect. He uses our entire being. It's not just a poof, magical thing happening. He uses all these faculties that he's given us. And so Nehemiah, wrestling with this on his heart, is planning on what am I going to talk to the king and how am I going to get there? And then he's on a roll here. Like, just, like, on a roll. Um, and so the king allows him to leave his post as cupbearer, which is going to be a long time. And that's, I think that, like, that even in and of itself is a significant thing because the cupbearer is so close to the king. He's like the king's personal security when it comes to the poisoning, like we talked about earlier. And so to allow another person to take up that post that maybe you don't know quite as well is almost in itself another liability. And this guy, obviously, Nehemiah has favor with the king. You don't want to let guys you really like just not be around for a long time. So I, it's just you see God's hand even in this part. But so as he gets on this role, uh, he, he uh, asks for the most hilarious things. And um, he wants letters given to the governor so that he gets free access across the land. But now he's going to ask for the financing of the building. Right? Like he's, the practicality of it. It's like, I've got nothing to lose. The king said yes so many times. Let's just see if we can fire this one. I'm rolling double sixes. Here we go. Uh, and what does he say? I need timber. Can you give me letters of your forest that you own, of your wood that's yours? And in this town of Long, we know wood does, doesn't come out of the forest easy. It's difficult to get it. It's costly to get it. And in that day, it's probably entirely costly. And so he asked, can you give me letters to finance that? And the king grants him all of it. And I, I just look at that, and I, it's just one of those amazing things. Like, there is no end to what we can ask God and what he can do. We just ask. It's not that he's going to answer. It's just that we can ask. There's no ending of what we can ask. There is nothing too large for our God. And Nehemiah, here's the amazing thing. He realizes something here. And this is him recording and reflecting on this after. He says, he can see that this was God. For the good hand of my God was upon me. That's amazing. He recognizes the entire event that happens there as God's hand being upon him. So we have that, that waiting time, that period of planning and wrestling. Draw, 
just goes out on, in faith, trusts God is working on the inside. And then, now he gets to go. So he leaves. Um, sorry, I just got lost in my notes for a second. So Nehemiah now leaves. He gets financed to go across this giant uh, desert area uh, to go to the province of, uh, beyond the river they called it, which would have been the river Euphrates. So it says in verse 9, we pick it up. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officials of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly. Um, that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So like we talked about earlier, we know that Jerusalem is in tatters and is in ruins. And these two characters we just meet here, Sanballat and Tobiah, um, they are going to be essentially the bane of Nehemiah's work that he has to do there. Um, it, when you're in a situation like that, like the, Tobiah and, and Sanballat, they do not want to see the people come out of their depression and their ruins. And there is a thing in that misery. These guys are obviously oppressing. They're working off the misery of these people. This is the reality of evil in our world. It wants to be there. It is the antithesis to God's picture of human flourishing. God made man to flourish. The very first order that was given was be fruitful and multiply. Here is this place, now go. Right? That's what he gave man to do. Right? Anything that would destroy man's flourishing is the antithesis to how God viewed it. Nehemiah is coming there to put walls up to see flourishing again so that fear wouldn't be rampant in the city, so that people would be free to praise God, to worship him. Like, it, it's a huge undertaking. And these two guys, they are, the, they are the, the images, if you will, of the reality of evil in this world. And we know, and this is the thing that we know about today in our world. We don't fight against, uh, we don't fight against flesh and blood, as the Bible says. We fight against these realities, these spiritual realities that are working in the background. And they work with people, and they want to keep it like that. And so Nehemiah, we should, he gets, all these things are going great for him until he shows up, and now he meets these two guys who are going to be the bane of his existence for this long. And it would seem like, oh, wow, you know, what am I going to do about this? Nehemiah presses forward. And we're going to see, as this goes on, uh, we're going to see how well Nehemiah takes this, um, and that he is just a man on one single track mission. Uh, to see that done. Um, so, I don't know if you've heard the story of William Tyndale. Um, he's kind of, if, if you haven't heard of him, um, but you've read an English translation of the Bible, then you've benefited from his work. Um, I just want to get my dates right. William Tyndale, he was born in 1494 uh, in England. And this guy, he was a brilliant guy. He was, he was an ordinary guy, but in, he was born in 1494. He spoke seven languages. Uh, and he spoke and read Greek and ancient Hebrew uh, really well. Um, and what happened in his life around the time of 1523, so he would have been uh, about 29 years old, just gone on 30, um, he was reading Erasmus's Greek translation, and he learned about justification by faith. And it sparked something in him. That just, he had a bee in his bonnet from that point on. And at that point, the, the Holy Roman Catholic Church was kind of the ruler of the whole world. And so he was a part of that. That He was training at Oxford and then Cambridge down the road. And this is where it happened in Cambridge. And he 
wanted to now translate the Bible into uh, the ordinary language. And so he went to the bishop and he asked the bishop, can we do this? Like, can we get funding for this? This is a brilliant idea. Now, if you're the Holy Roman Empire and you've got this entire amount of people underneath your rule because you carry with it the only valid translation and the only valid um, commentary of the Bible and you can use that as control of the people, you're not really wanting to get the hand of the people involved in figuring out what this word says. And so they obviously said, it's not going to happen. We're not going to do that. But William Tyndale decided, no, it's going to happen. So he takes off. He had to go to a free city. He ends up in Worms, uh, it, which is, was one of the free cities in Europe. And in 1525, uh, the first English translation uh, of the Bible appears. And it goes in circulation. And <clears throat> there's a couple ironic things. This is an amazing thing. Uh, but a couple ironic things is that when the king, who was Henry VIII at the time, when he gets a hold of this, him and his officials, they get a hold of this uh, translation of the Bible, and they basically call it trash. This is, this is junk. This is terrible. Um, and now they're, they're like, we've, we've got to get this guy, and we've got to kill him. So their little idea was, we're going to buy up all, we're going to buy up the entire lot of Bibles, that he's, the New Testaments that he is, that he is uh, distributed. So they buy it all up. In the meantime, they actually funded his work. So he's not only, he's funded by the very people who are trying to uh, kill him at this point, because um, that's what happens back in that day. Um, and so he gets basically financing for the next decade. He heads out, goes to a different city, and he's basically on the run. And now he's, gonna, he's on a bigger mission. It's, I'm going to revise that version to make it more precise, and I'm going to now translate the Old Testament. So he goes for a decade, goes into these running and hiding. But the interesting part is during that decade, as he's translating, as he's doing this work, he's, he's reading the Bible and he's like, I'm not just going to be the translator and, and, be, and, and just go into my work. If I don't do what this says, then what am I doing in the first place? So he actually has this, he goes out and ministers to the poor. He feeds, like he's there for the sick. He's there in people's houses reading scripture to them, like he's ministering for 10 years. Not only did he was his work, but he saw the scripture and he acted upon it. And God was working through this guy the whole time. And then it wasn't until uh, later, uh, so about, I think it was October 6th, yeah, 19, or 1536, uh, he gets betrayed by a close friend of his and ends up uh, in front of the town square. I can't remember which town it exactly was. Um, and they told him to recant all of and he doesn't. He doesn't. He, his most, his, kind of his most famous words uh, says this, and my old English is terrible. So it says, Let it not make thee despair, neither yet discourage thee, O reader, that it is forbidden thee in pain of life and goods, or that it is made the breaking of the king's peace or treason unto his highness to read the word of thy soul's health. For if God be on our side, then what matter it make if who be against us? be they bishops, cardinals, or popes. So this, these are like, this is like his famous line that he said. Uh, and he paid for it with his life. And he understood in that line. We can see he understood that what he was doing was in, against the government at the time. But it was something that God put on his heart, and he couldn't get it off his hands. Th this is, we have a history for so many thousands of years of people that God has put something on their hearts and that they have walked out in faith in fear, in real reality situations, like that's the reality of this world. It isn't, there's no red carpet rolled out for us in our ministry. It's uncomfortable at times, 
but we can trust that the Lord's there with us. It's gonna, we're going to meet opposition. Like this opposition that Nehemiah meets is going to be, like it gets really serious for a long time. Um, and we're going to see how he deals with that opposition. It's just a reality. And should we not expect that as believers? Jesus told us that, hey, you will have tribulation in this world, but behold, I have overcome it. Right? James reminded us after, James was, I think he was tossed off the pinnacle of the, of the uh, temple building. And what did he say? Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you receive trials of various kinds. We should expect that that opposition will exist. Not because necessarily that it's a requirement of it, but because we are not fighting against flesh and blood. There's a cosmic battle scene going on. Like, and it seems like this, it's, it's, like it seems like it's out of this world, but it's true. Like if you would just realize that those people who may be uh, vehemently against you are actually just oppressed in themselves. That they are actually hurting themselves. That they are living in a type of filth and they don't want to live in it, but they are, they are manifesting that reality to you as a believer. We're going we're gonna to receive opposition. But who, of, who do we know who received the opposition? Who left the greatest thing? Like Nehemiah left a pretty plush job living essentially in and around the king. Like you wouldn't be outside if the king was cold. You'd be inside with him because it's warm in there. Like he had a pretty plush job. It didn't really cost him anything to go where he went other than he's missing out on the nice, lovely, luxury style living that he would have had there and he goes into an entirely unknown area. But who's the greater? Jesus is the greater. He lived for eternity at the Father's side. In Luxury is not even the word. There's not a word that we have in our English language that would describe the glory and the amazing luxury that Jesus really actually lived in. Like myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels singing praises all the time. Like uh, an image that we will not be able to handle that will have us on our knees and just praising with all those for all eternity. He left that to go to a place of cold, to go to a place of misery, to be surrounded by people with problems, uh, to minister to them, and to ultimately go to the cross and pay for something that they couldn't pay for. Jesus is our ultimate, right? He is the perfect picture of what it is to leave the comfort, to go into places discomfort, to enter the world, to trust in the Father's will. That was Jesus' entire thing. He was so focused. His prayer was amazing. Like this, Nehemiah is a small picture of Jesus in that day, and we can see that. And that's, that's the most amazing thing about this gospel is, hey, we're, we're going to have fears when we go out and do these things. I just, I just hope that we would, we would be praying for God to work on our hearts how we're going to reach this broken world around us. First, our, our body and our, our, the believers in the church. I mean, this is, Nehemiah is going to Jerusalem. This is his kin. He didn't pick any other city. He picked the city of his kin. And that's what we're called to, even as the church, is first our family and then the greater world around us. Like the, the world around us is going to know the love of God through how it is that we take care and how we love our brothers and sisters. And I hope that we start to pray to that means and to that end that we would be that people that God sees or that that people see around us and they can see Jesus living through us. 
it's going to be uncomfortable. There's going to be fears. All those things are going to be realities. And man, sometimes there's a long wait before something can happen. Don't just jump out there and start being soapboxing on the corner. That might not be the way. Maybe it is. I don't know. If you're feeling it, then go for it. But that's probably not how it's going to be. It may be a long time of waiting. And it may be the people that you work with. Or it may be someone that you're just really contentious with. And you're going to be praying and waiting on the Lord. But we need to be a people laden in prayer. That that just marks our lives. We feel God's heart for this world. That was one amazing thing about Nehemiah is his heart is, it's not, it's not a priest, it's a description of the Christian heart. Like it's describing what happens to your heart when you understand and realize how much it is that God has given you by his mercies and grace. And that's setting him on that. And that's a description of what our hearts ought to be. If we aren't seeing the lost and broken world around us and not grieving about the things that we see in this world, that's not a heart that you need to have, that need, you need to repent of that heart if you're a believer. Your heart needs to be broken for those around us. Jesus' heart was, Nehemiah's heart was, and may our hearts be. And may the single focus that we have is to do his will on earth, that his kingdom may come. And it's here, it's in and amongst our church. Like, that's what the people of God are. The church isn't a building that we need to come and gather on a Sunday. It is the people of God in the areas and places that they're in, going out and being, Jesus to the world around them, right? To give your life for that. And just educate yourself in the history of our church, the history of the people that we have been in line with for many thousands of years. There's example after example of ordinary, everyday people being used in the positions and the places that they're at for the glory of God. I think that's one of the most amazing testimonies that we have. Let's pray. Father, we just... Thank you that you, are, that you are sovereign, that you are God on high. Uh, there is no one like you. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And you, for whatever reason, you've decided to use humans, weak and feeble uh, humans, to bring about your restoration uh, of this world, to bring about the restoration of people's lives. Um, and we thank you for the gospel of Jesus, our King. We thank you that you have given us hope uh, and that, Lord, that we can trust because your word is testified to the fact that you have, throughout all of history, uh, been consistent. You have shown us through prophecy and fulfilled prophecy again and again. Lord, we just look forward to your coming. Um, but while we're here, may we not be idle. Uh, may we see and feel the brokenness of this world. May we see and, um, and keep our eyes open and see for opportunities uh, for the world around us that we would be able to be um, the walks according to the Lord, you are good. Uh, we know that your steadfast love endures forever. Uh, and may we just praise you.